welcome to the Fit Life with Jessica podcast, where we talk about how to create and maintain healthy habits with our fitness, nutrition, and overall well-being. This is a place where you can come to get real life, health, and fitness advice from a busy working mama who has a passion for helping others find their way to health and happiness. We're all in this crazy journey together, so why not lean on and lift each other up in the process? Imagine what it would feel like starting your day with a really easy to make, energy boosting, fat burning, but yummy smoothie. If that sounds like your jam, I've got you covered. I have the ultimate smoothie making guide for you. It is totally free. I've got four of my go-to smoothie recipes in there. So make sure, click the link in the show notes and grab that smoothie making guide. All right, Beth, why don't you tell our amazing mamas, amazing listeners um, a little bit about you and yourself and what you do and who you serve? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Beth Bowen. I live outside of Austin, Texas with my family. Uh, It's my husband. Our two boys who are three and six, uh, and then a whole host of animals. I'm sure one of them will make an introduction on the podcast. Love it. They're <laughs> currently all surrounding me at the moment. Um, but my background is in clinical clinical therapy. My background's in social work. I got my master's degree many, many years ago. I don't want to date myself here. <laughs> um, but my my clinical work was primarily in the mental health and the substance use field. And now I actually work with women who are looking to change their relationship with alcohol specifically. But I kind of came to that through um, a meandering way of really finding my own version of, of living without alcohol, of being alcohol free. So I quit drinking about four years ago and really have spent the last four years finding what feels really good in that and what feels aligned to me versus kind of these more prescribed traditional boxes that uh, so many of us are familiar with in this idea of people who don't drink. And so now I work with women who are really looking to do it on their own terms, who maybe don't identify with labels, who maybe don't fit in traditional recovery boxes or have tried different, different meetings and and haven't really found the right fit. And my work really focuses on more of a whole person approach to this. So how do we really heal our nervous systems? How do we untangle our stories from alcohol? How do we find what feels really good to us and what makes us feel really joyful and expansive and go from there? So it's, it's a really wonderful way to kind of marry my clinical expertise and, and, and what I learned in grad school and my work in the field. But also with my lived experience with this substance that, you know, is really challenging for me at certain points in my life. So that's a little, that's kind of the, the, the cliff notes. (laughs) I love that. I love that. And I love how your, your approach and your whole mentality around alcohol and being alcohol. I love that you call it alcohol free. Like it doesn't Mm. have to be this word, quote unquote, sober. It doesn't have to be like a box. Like you say, like you have such a different approach Mm. than a lot of other people or a lot of other, um, means that I've seen. And I think Mm. the era that we're in, you know, things are so gray. It's not black and white. 
Totally. And especially with something as personal and as can be hot an issue for some people as alcohol, you know, it's such mm. a personal thing. And that must have been such a, an interesting shift for you to go from like clinical work, right. To <laughs> yeah. like, what was that transition? Like, was that like an abrupt, like, I'm going to stay home with my children or was it like, you know what? I feel this yearning. I feel this calling to work with women. Like, how did that look like for you? You know, it's a, um, a, a long, complicated answer, but <laughs> the, the, the beginning of it is that I actually left more of the clinical work, more of the, the traditional social work when I had my first son, Will. So he's six now. I had him um, six, I guess, do the math on that, six years mm-hmm. ago. And at the time I was working in emergency room social work. So I was seeing a lot of oh. mental health crisis, a lot of substance use crisis. And in that experience of leaving the workforce, moving into more of this stay-at-home mom role, more of this new mom role, and I and I was pretty young when I had children. Okay, how old of, were you? I, I was twenty-five, and so okay. I was really the first of my peers to have kids. Mm-hmm. I was really the first of my family to have kids, and in that experience, it was really isolating. And I think a lot of you know, women listening to listening to this can relate because I've really started to connect with women over time who have this same experience. But I went into motherhood thinking that this was my dream job to to be a stay at home mom, to be home with my children, to raise babies. And what I experienced instead was most certainly undiagnosed postpartum depression and eventually postpartum anxiety and a lot of isolation and a high stress load and a baby who was, was quote unquote, a, a hard baby. Mm. He had a dairy allergy, which we eventually figured out. Oh, that is but so for, hard. Yes. Yeah. For a long time, took us some, some trial and error. And what really came out of that was a really steep escalation of my alcohol use. And it started as this kind of reward at five o'clock for making it through Mm -hmm. a day of of parenting. And one glass turned into two. And then eventually I found myself drinking as much as a bottle or sometimes more (laughs) of wine a night. And it was really, truly something that became a tool that I used to get through another day of parenting. And eventually I became certainly psychologically dependent on it. I, I, I would argue that there was some physical dependence as well, but at the same time, I didn't meet, I, I didn't look like the typical person who was struggling with alcohol. Mm, And I knew that this idea of calling myself an alcoholic or of going to an AA meeting, it felt like a non-starter for me. It felt like a barrier to entry. It felt like more of a life sentence than anything good and joyful. And and, and that's my personal, that, that's how my spirit felt with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because of that, you know, I, I continued drinking for a lot longer than I probably should have and, and certainly wish I had. But when Will was about two years old, I quit drinking. And, and, and I say I quit drinking. It wasn't just like I snapped my fingers and that happened. But 
that was when it finally stuck. When I stopped having these, you know, it was, it was a two year period of, of knowing that this was something that wasn't serving me, knowing that this was something that was starting to feel really, really, really toxic in my life and really impacting my mental health, really impacting my marriage, impacting my ability to live within my values uh, of knowing this and then still not being able to remove it from my life for good. But my sober date is September 29th, 2017. Uh, I've been alcohol free since then and uh, kind of came to it on my own terms, kind of came to it in a version that didn't necessarily look like any sort of traditional quote unquote recovery. It didn't mm-hmm. look like any sort of traditional uh, modality of, of, of becoming alcohol free. And in that experience, it really taught me how lonely that is and how there's, there's so much that goes into being able to remove a substance like alcohol from your life that goes so above and beyond the simple removal of alcohol. There's, there's resilience building, there's caring for our mental health, there's learning how to connect to our bodies again without having to numb out. There's unlearning all these stories we have about alcohol and through that, that experience and, and this experience of really starting to connect into this community to to meet other people who have shared stories, to meet other people who look like me, who sound like me, who have gone through the same experience, really showed me that there is a very, very large population of people, but specifically women. Mm-hmm. And, and if I want to get even more niche, um, a lot of moms who yeah. are experiencing the same struggle of this this substance works for us and the substance is a tool to manage our nervous system to get through a long day to calm calm our anxiety and because it's such an effective tool in the moment it is and it's a physically addictive substance this becomes something that we rely on and then the more we rely on it the more it starts to tear us down and the more it starts to impact our mental health and our self-worth and our physical bodies and our sleep and and it's this vicious cycle and i've i've just met so many women now in this space who perhaps don't fit those traditional modalities of recovery who are drinking in maladaptive ways, but maybe don't meet clinical criteria for alcohol use disorder. You know, there's this this wide, as you said, it's not so black and white anymore. It's this gray area of maladaptive drinking, of using the substance to cope. And in that, in that, all of of that uh, experience that I have in my lived experience was really what informed my decision to move into working with women specifically in this area and coming at it from this idea of there's no one right way to do this. There's no one right label. There's no one right identifier. We really get to do this on our own terms, but with the support, with the tools, with the ability to really build a foundation that lets us stay alcohol-free in the first place versus just white-knuckling it. Mm. There's so many things you said there that really stuck out to me, but probably one of the biggest things you said was how becoming a mom, when you are a new mother, even if you don't have people in your social circle or family members, maybe that have just had kids, it is extremely isolating. Mm, yeah. That was something that I was not prepared for. I have two kids similar in mm-hmm. age to yours. Mine is almost seven and four. Mm. Um, and it's just, you know, I ended up I did not stay home with my children. I went back to work after about 
three, three and a half months and, mm-hmm. you know, dealt with mommy guilt and dealt with, you know, putting oh, my yeah. children in daycare and, and dealt with, you know, all of these things and the strange juxtaposition of how like mommy wine culture is immediately oh. marketed to you the second you yep. pop out a kid. Yep. And this also like, this doesn't feel so good anymore, right? Mm. Like the thing that used to be fun in college where we had zero responsibilities and we could party it up all night and all day. And like, now this is like, now because I'm a mom, I'm like, I'm isolated. So I'm yearning that connection mm-hmm. with other women. And I'm yearning like, just frankly, some, you know, stress relievers. Yes. And then you're served up all this like mommy wine culture BS. <laughs> and like, I didn't. I didn't, I didn't come online to that until probably in the last year. Um, mm. I read a book called quit like a woman. Oh yeah. And it's, it's brilliant. The author it's freaking amazing. Holly Whitaker. And yes, thank you. Holly Whitaker. It's a fantastic read. Even if you, wh- whatever your relationship is yes. with alcohol, I think that every woman should read it, but it, it dives into this, how the alcohol industry is likened to the cigarette industry and likened yep. to big pharma. And it was such an eye opener for me to hear yep. that and thought like, Holy shit, we're being <laughs> spoon fed these ads on Instagram. Oh yeah. And it, yet now there's this strange pull of like, gosh, this doesn't feel so good anymore. And like, this is not helping my mental health and this is making my anxiety actually worse. Right. When you think mm. it should be making it better because you're, you know, you're numbing out and you're feeling better, but then you're, it's actually making your anxiety worse. And it's just such a, I think it's so crucial to be aware that just because you're a mom doesn't mean you have to buy into this wine culture. And well, <sighs> and I, I think you hit the nail on the head with like this craving, this desire to be part of community when you're a young mom. And I will tell you, I bought into mommy wine culture hook, line and sinker. It was very compelling for me when, like I said, I was, I was young. I didn't have any peers that had children. So, you know, my best friend would text me and be like, Hey, do you want to go to Mexico next month? I'd be like, yeah, I would love to go to Mexico next month. Also you and I don't live on the same planet anymore. (laughs) I can't just go to Mexico. Um, obviously pre Pre COVID, pre COVID, we, we wish we could. But, yeah, exactly. Um, it doesn't work that way anymore. <laughs> but but what I found myself experiencing was that I was desperate for community. I was desperate for some sort of camaraderie. I wanted to connect with other moms, other women, in this idea of mommy wine culture. This idea of like we're all in this together with Pinot Grigio and mm-hmm. and like when they wine, I wine, and and just the. I, I truly felt a, a sense of community in that and connection in that. And I think that's the danger of it. And that's that's nothing to say of how we grossly underprepare mothers for motherhood and all of the support that really moms need that we don't have built into our infrastructure, built into our day-to-day lives. But I really, really bought into that specific idea of camaraderie through mommy wine culture and and what you said about 
the Instagram ads and, and suddenly being marketed to is really interesting, I think. And it's so funny. I have, I have some dear old friends who are like, I love you. I cannot like a single one of your Instagram photos because as soon as I do, every <laughs> single ad is about being alcohol free and like, yes. that's just not my jam. And I'm like, I totally understand it. But what, what that tells us is that the algorithm is getting smarter and smarter oh, and it's so really doing a wonderful job at hyper targeting different people and mommy wine market or what mommy wine culture is marketing. They like, there are studies, there's data that says this didn't exist a decade ago. This didn't mm-hmm. exist when our moms were moms, this idea of mommy drinks wine to relieve stress or like when they wine, I wine or mommy deserves wine. This idea didn't exist decades ago. And it's this thing that is this new idea that has entered kind of the zeitgeist. And and, and it's my opinion. And I, I think Holly shares the same one in her book, but that a lot of it is big alcohol companies identifying vulnerable populations that they can market their product to. And mm. It, you talk yep. about this idea of it being likened to the cigarette industry and to, to big pharma. And it's one of those things you kind of step out of the matrix and it's, yes. it's a little wild to step back and see, but so much of it is, is marketing. So much of it is connecting to vulnerabilities and connecting to ideas that are really compelling for a lot of people and utilizing that to sell a product it just so happens that the product itself is highly addictive. It's a known carcinogen. It ruins lives and, you know, has all these other maladaptive um, consequences to it. But I think it's just this, this trap that so many women fall into and add on the fact that so many of us have really dysregulated nervous systems after having kids Mm. and sleep deprivation and often postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. And it creates really this very vulnerable population to this substance that is culturally socialized, that we are encouraged to drink, that is ever present everywhere. I mean, I, I remember I went to my OB after I had I think it was Max, my second son. So I was already sober, but I went to my OB and I mentioned mm. that Max wasn't sleeping or something. You know, I was complaining about something. She's got kids the same age and she joked about drinking another bottle of wine. She was like, oh yeah, I just got to go get more wine. And wow. it was really interesting to me that even this healthcare provider who I adore, she and I have a great relationship. I don't think she knew I was sober at the time, obviously, right. but that even people who have this really clinical knowledge are still using the substance themselves. They are socialized to use the substance as they do. And, and the truth of it is, is when I was working in the ER and I was working with people in crisis for substance use, I had such a clear distinction between them and me, even Mm, when I was using alcohol. And I think that so many of us do of, this could never happen to me. This idea of addiction, this idea of using a substance like this maladaptively, and I, I don't even want to say badly because I, I, I think language is really important, but this idea of using a substance in the wrong way, that's we can easily separate ourselves from that and say like, oh no, I could never do that. I would never be that person. And then I meet so many people who are, who, who are surprised when they find themselves suddenly drinking a bottle of wine every night 
Oh yeah. Just because you don't look like the, the documentary on A&E or yeah. like the, I forget the name of the show I used to watch all the time about people that intervention, intervention, intervention yeah. right? <laughs> Just because we don't look like the girl who's huffing keyboard cleaner in a yeah. cemetery on intervention, like doesn't mean like there's, there's such a right. spectrum, right? And I think people, I think the media does a really good job of clouding this too. And like, when you think about like, okay, did this movie dramatic, like rock bottom, you mm. know, like, was there like a moment for you that was like, oh shit, this is, I gotta, I gotta change like now. Mm. Some people have very dramatic moments like that. Some people, it's a series of moments. Some people, it's a really long, painful process and decision. Like, did you have one or many or what did that look like for you to really make that decision in September of 2017? You're like, I'm done. I'm mm. done, sis. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that that's a really good point to point out that we have this idea, we have this perception that if you don't have a rock bottom, if you don't get a DWI, if you don't like fall on your your face in the street, like which I have done many times, but it just wasn't right. my rock bottom. If you don't like have some sort of major event in your life that is your wake up call to say, oh my God, I have to quit drinking today there's this idea that if we don't have that, then our drinking must be okay. And that the way it's showing up in our life maybe isn't that bad. And for me, that was, I I never had a true obvious rock bottom. Mine was much more of a slow deterioration of my mental health. And I actually wrote a post about this recently. For the longest time, I would tell people that I I didn't have a rock bottom period. And I think there's, there's some truth in that because I don't, I never had like a stereotypical, obvious rock bottom. I mostly drank wine on my couch (laughs) at night. Like it wasn't like I was partying out and about. It wasn't hurting anybody. It wasn't anything that was like, had these very obvious repercussions, but what I had come to is that my mental health and and you spoke about anxiety earlier, but my mental health and my self-worth specifically had just become so deteriorated, so damaged that I, I think really, truly my rock bottom was at midnight one night sitting on my couch and my husband had already gone to bed because that was what we did. He would, we'd watch a TV show together and I wanted to keep drinking. So he'd go to bed and I would stay up and then wake up with the baby in like three hours. Mm. And I remember looking at the clock and feeling like I was, I was not able to stop drinking like that. Let me preface it with that. Like this had become something where like I knew it was not in my control anymore. And I looked at the clock and I thought to myself like, man, I hate you so much. And Mm. I really got to the point where I thought I was the worst person on the planet. I thought I was just a terrible human being, like not worthy of love, not worthy of connection, not worthy of anything good in my life, not worthy of, of this beautiful child that I had. And that was my rock bottom. And I, I think that it was a lot quieter and more subtle than what we perceive to be the rock bottom Yes. Or this this idea of like this wake up call that we suddenly have to turn our lives around. And and it had been, it came after a long time of knowing that this wasn't working anymore and knowing that alcohol was really harming me. And it was the one thing that was stopping me from everything I wanted in life. 
And I wish, <laughs> I wish I could say that that was the day that I changed everything, but it still wasn't. And mm-hmm. I had many day ones. I had many attempts at removing this from my life that it, it took, like I had to have those days to be able to say on September 29th, like this, that was the date. And I think that that's the other piece that we sometimes miss is it really requires a good amount of practicing and resilience building and reducing our stress load and building coping mechanisms to make it so that it is eventually sustainable, so that it is something that finally sticks. And and that was kind of what it was for me. I think that's so important to hear. I mean, it doesn't have to look one way or the other. It doesn't have to be this romanticized rock bottom moment. It really mm. is like, it's very personal and it's so different for everybody. And I think that's such a, that's gotta be a, a lonely place to be, you know, and just like the, the self-loathing and that's, that's gotta be such an, like you said, kind of like a wake up call, you know, mm. it's, nobody should say, I hate myself. Like that's mm. just, but yet that's where we sometimes go. And that's where sometimes with depression and anxiety, like that's where, our brain ends up sometimes by no fault of our own. And so you've got to cultivate, you know, all of these new coping mechanisms and you've got to cultivate like these new tools that PS we don't learn in college. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know I was just talking to a friend. She, she's, I, she's an educator and she writes curriculum now and she's like in socio emotional development or something. I'm like, Oh my God, thank goodness. The kids are finally learning some of this stuff oh, because goodness. I really wish I had learned how to regulate my nervous system instead of econ 101. Um, cause I still don't know what the stock market's doing, exactly. but I wish I could. Yeah. Like I had to learn, I was forced to learn how to regulate my nervous system, but <clears throat> you know, talking about this, this idea of, um, this, this self-loathing, a lot of my work is presently, what I do presently is informed by Dr. Brene Brown's shame resilience theory. Mm. And one of the things we know from her amazing research and, and what we know on the clinical side of shame is, is that shame is something that perpetuates the behavior that creates it in the first place. So this idea of this vicious cycle of like, I know I want to stop drinking. I know this isn't working for me, but I can't stop. And like the shame makes us continue to drink that. Mm. And that also shame really impacts our self-worth and shame really impacts our internal dialogue and is what starts to tell us like, God, you're such a, you're such a trash human. Like you're such a terrible person. And because of that, and I've done a lot of like back-end research on this ever since, but we really have a lot of data and a lot of information now that links people who have high markers for shame, high markers for shame susceptibility, so they're more susceptible to experiencing shame, are also the same people that have higher markers for indicators of challenges with substance use. (laughs) So it's this really interesting chicken or the egg, like which one came first, but we know that there's a link between the two. We know that people who are more likely to experience challenges with substance use are also the same people who have higher benchmarks, higher indicators of shame proneness. So it's a really interesting intersection. But what this tells us is that if we can tackle the shame, if we can tackle that inner dialogue, that self-loathing, that itself is a vehicle to making more sustainable change. So if I, 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 I talk to people and I say like, 
if if nothing else, I don't even need you to stop drinking right now, but like, let's get you to love yourself first. And if you can love yourself, if you can forgive yourself, if you can move through this shame and like evidence-based clinical frameworks, then we can maybe touch the alcohol, but the alcohol has created this web of shame. The alcohol has created this inner dialogue that is making it to where it's just the self-fulfilling prophecy that just goes and goes and goes in this hamster wheel. Oh, that's so powerful. I love, mm. I love Brene Brown. She's freaking amazing. Yeah. I'm a theory um, nerd, so I could like dig into the-, the theory all day. <laughs> I need to read like all of her books, <laughs> but I love, I love the work that she's done. And I love what you said about how those are almost intertwined. And that's just, yeah. that's really, really powerful. So what are some things that you do now? Like what are some rituals some habits that you had to cultivate and learn over mm-hmm. these past four or five years? Like yeah. when your kids are driving you crazy and it's that <laughs> witching hour for me, which is like five to seven of uh, you just like your, your chest is, t- well, I'm speaking, but my, your chest is tight. You're on edge. Yeah. Your muscles are tense. Like what are some things that you would, that you would do or did do to kind of get through the hard years? Mm. Well, first off, congratulations on having the emotional intelligence to be able to identify that your chest gets tight (laughs) (laughs) because that's, that's truly a skill. That's truly a skill to be able to identify where we feel feelings Mm. in our bodies and what they feel like. And, and I, it's funny that you say that because I, when I talk about anxiety, when I talk about shame, it it lives in my chest too. And so you can't see me right now, but I'm literally pointing at my chest and touching my chest. And I do that a lot. I'm, I've like caught myself on video and it's an- annoying to me, but it's like, that's where it lives for me. It's one of those things. Once you realize it, you can't unsee it. Oh, like yeah. you can't, I, oh. this is still very new to me with therapy and learning all of these things that like, <laughs> oh, emotions are actually trying to tell us something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's good. <laughs> well, and emotions live in our body and that's, uh, that's yes. truly like one of the cornerstones of my own practices and my own, the, the work that I do. Um, and I do apologize. I live in a train town. So if you, oh, <laughs> all good. It's fine. if you hear it coming through, that's, it's pretty much unavoidable here. Nice. Um, but you know, I have really had to dig into making my physical and emotional body well enough that I don't need to numb out. And that's the key for me. At this point, I'm no longer at risk for drinking alcohol. I know too much, first off. First off, like, I just, I know too much. And then I see the damage it takes in my everyday work. Like, I I just work with so many women who this single substance has just wrecked so much. So I'm not really ever at risk for using alcohol. I don't crave it anymore. It's not something that I really think to consume, but I still have this experience of, of this stress, of this chest tightening, of this nervous system dysregulate dysregulation that comes when like WrestleMania is going on in my living room (laughs) or I have my son's basketball practice tonight and it's really loud in this gymnasium. So what that has forced me to do because I can no longer turn it off with alcohol, which is what I used to do, mm-hmm. is really first and foremost, reduce my stress load so that I have enough capacity when those events come up, when those experiences come up, but also build a toolbox of things that I know will work for me. So when I say reduce my stress load, I one of the, the things that I really focus on in my work is this idea of our body battery. And it, it, the kind of the short explanation of this is that 
you know, in theory, we go to bed and wake up in the morning and we are at our peak amount of energy. And of course you have kids. So you, you know, as well as I do that very, very many of us, especially moms, um, do not wake up with a hundred percent charged battery. We're like at like 85 to like, like the iPhone that like, even though it's four yeah. years old, it only gets to 79%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that is us. But in theory, let's, let's just for like practices, love this analogy, say that we wake up at a hundred percent and every single decision, every single conflict, every single stressor, every single emotion that we have throughout the day starts to chip away at our body battery. And what happens when we are at a low point in our body battery is, or or when our body battery has been depleted, is that we move from a part in our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is where our decision-making and our impulse control and our planning and our personality and our value systems, that's where our, our, all of those things live in our prefrontal cortex. We move from that, which is usually what drives the bus, which is usually what informs our action as we're like moving out in the world. We start slipping from that place into these more animalistic structures, the ones that are more interested in immediate gratification, mm. in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like they're the things that want pleasure. They want dopamine. They want to feel really good, really fast. And so What we see playing out in real time is when you wake up in the morning and you are fully charged and you're like, I'm never drinking again. This is it. I'm done. And then throughout the day, we start draining our body battery with ridiculous stress loads at work, with horrible commutes to work, with fights with our partners, with having to make a thousand decisions. And then by five o'clock, we have drained so much of our body battery that we are no longer in our prefrontal cortex, we are no longer in our decision-making center in our brain. And we've moved back to those other structures that want immediate gratification. And we find ourselves pulling into the grocery Mm. store parking lot to get a bottle of wine. So, yeah. So like this one theory, this one idea has truly like been both in my experience, but also in the people that I work with is like the pivotal idea of, okay, so I have this body battery what do I do to preserve it? And for me, that really looks like reducing my decision-making. So eating the same thing for lunch every day instead of having to decide or meal planning, meal prepping, putting clothes out the day before. Um, So really reducing the number of decisions I have to make and knowing that if I have a day where I'm going to be making a lot of decisions, like we just, we're we're in the middle of building a house right now and designing Mm -hmm. a house. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, the day that I have to like pick out the doorknobs, (laughs) I have to do nothing else. So really reducing my decision fatigue throughout the day and making as many systems as in my life as possible. So like knowing that I have systems in my business, knowing that I have systems with the kids sports and, and creating these flows in life that really take some of that brain power out of it. That's so good, man. That's so smart. Yeah. But also like I'm fiercely protective of my energy and I say no to a lot of things and I turn down a lot of opportunities and I turn down a lot of obligations Mm -hmm. and I know that my no is something that is done in service to my body battery, to maintaining Mm -hmm. that body battery. So that was a very long winded answer. That's so good. I, it's so funny. You said that last sentence about like your no Mm. protects your body battery. I was having mm-hmm. a conversation with a friend of mine. We're in a ma- mastermind together and she had to turn down the opportunity to go on this beautiful trip. Mm. And she's like, I'm just, you know, there's so much going on and I can't do this and I can't do that. And like the struggles of like, all the things, yes. right? We're juggling yeah. 800 balls in the air. And I'm like, you know what? I'm proud of you. 
Mm. for saying no, like as legit as it would have been to go to this sunny, warm spot for a retreat for this thing, if it didn't feel aligned and if it felt harder for you to say yes, and if no is the right answer, then you said no to protect all of these other yeses. You said no to serve yourself. And the older I get and the more attuned I get, like you said, with my energy and Mm. my, my values and like trying to run a business and be a mother and be a wife and all the things without losing my mind. Yeah. (laughs) I'm having to say no to more stuff and I'm having to say no, like unfucking apologetically, like no. And there is no, like, Oh, I'm so there's no, sorry. There's no explanation. There's no lie. I used to lie to get out of stuff. Yep. Like fun social obligations. I would yep. make up a freaking lie. Yep. Why? That's so funny you say that because literally this like yesterday I was supposed to go to brunch with some sober girlfriends and it was like 48 minutes before I was supposed to be there and I just texted them. I was like, y'all, it's just not happening. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> like, I can't do it because even though I knew that was going to be fun, I also knew that even fun things, even exciting things can be a drain on my body battery and social stuff is, is definitely a drain for me. And knowing my limits and, and knowing that I had already done several other things throughout the weekend, I had done some social stuff, I had done some family stuff. And knowing that if I did one more thing, even though it was something I wanted to do, even though it was something fun and with connections who really built me up, I knew it was just going to be my tipping point. And so I said no to brunch and it's like, Oh man, it's, it's such a relief to also not have to make an excuse. I just straight up was like, Nope, right? not going to make it. Sorry. <laughs> it's the most freeing thing in the yeah. world. Like to just say, I'm sorry, I can't make yeah. it. Like, and I feel like your real friends, like the real, real yeah. understand. Well, and it's so funny that. because like, I'll tell you, I've, I've really built some beautiful alcohol free connections in the last year or so. And there's a very special knowing that comes from meeting other people who have a a shared life experience with you. And no matter what that is, no matter Mm -hmm. what the the experience is, but man, some of the deepest connections I've made yet have been through other women who have had these same struggles and other women who are now living in this world. And and one of the things you said at the beginning, I, I think was interesting and I meant to touch on it, but like living without alcohol really is a, a counterculture act in the yeah. world that we live in. And to connect with people in that space, it has just been, been really beautiful. I think I saw a post you did about how it's like kind of your act of rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I am so here for that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, that. And, and Holly Whitaker in her book, quit like a woman really talks a lot about that, but I really identify with this idea of like, this is my one act of resistance that allows me to show up in the world in my fullest iteration and be the fullest, most authentic, most honest version of myself. And leaning into that has, has made it feel very powerful to me. That's, that's epic. I I love that. I love how you talked about reducing the decisions that you make. I get decision Mm. fatigue very quickly. Like, yes. I stand in the cheese aisle and can just cry sometimes. Like, how are there this many types of cheddar cheese? Come yeah. on, guys. Like, <laughs> let's get it together. Like, can we consolidate? But yeah. I say that, but it's true. Like, in the, in the same token, being a mother and being, you know, someone who works and even just a woman, if you don't have children, but a woman in this world where you're working and there's so many decisions to be made on a daily basis and you get decision fatigue. So, like, small, tiny things. I love what you mentioned about, yeah. like, literally 
picking out my clothes the night before, even if it's just like laying out my workout clothes. Like I work from home. I'm wearing slippers right now. Yep. Like it doesn't matter Same. what I wear. Same. <laughs> laying out, you know, what you're going to lay in, do in yeah. the morning or like getting your coffee cup ready for your coffee or making my kids lunches the night before, if I can remember it, like little bitty, tiny things. They don't have to be these big epic shifts, but these little bitty shifts. Well, and, and this help. is a concept every single human being on the planet can use. You don't have to have challenges with alcohol right. to be able to understand that when we drain our body battery, we move into a part of our brain functioning that does not prioritize our values. It does not mm. prioritize our impulse control. It does not prioritize the the desires that we truly have at our core. It just wants to feel really good really fast. So this is still something that in my day-to-day life now is relevant because like I said, I'm not at risk for drinking alcohol anymore, but I am at risk for like going and grabbing some cookie dough out of the freezer yes. or some other tool maladaptive or otherwise that will regulate a nervous system that will give me that dopamine hit that will make me feel good in the moment. And everyone has the ability to reduce their decisions. They have the ability to streamline. They have the ability to clear their calendars, say no, prioritize your energy. But I think specifically for mothers, I think one of the most important pieces for the women that I work with who are moms that I see is that we have really socialized moms to sacrifice everything for their families and to do everything for their family humanly possible to make sure the kids are fed organic food and that the Mm -hmm. house is clean and that the job is, you know, giving you the paycheck. And, And we have this world where moms are taught to sacrifice their physical, mental, and emotional health for the sake of their children. And and we don't advertise it as such. We don't say that that's what it is. But when moms do this, and I see it over and over and over again, they just realize that they have nothing left. There's nothing mm. left for them. And they become so depleted and they become so lost and so unable to see their own worth as a, an autonomous human that something comes up. It may not be alcohol, but something comes up, mental health, food, like whatever it is, we, we have taught mothers to prioritize everyone but themselves. And truly the, the, the piece of this that makes it all turn is when moms are well taken care of. And when moms are prioritizing their sleep and they're prioritizing their physical health, because when those things happen, when mom is good and well, the ripple effect is that the family's well, you know, that like all of 100 stuff starts working and that like, I, I, I have a lot of super mom clients and, and a lot of moms who are like, well, I'm just running myself ragged, trying to get all the, the class projects, trying to like have the organic snacks ready for when they get home from school, blah, blah, blah. And these moms are using a bottle of wine to cope every night. And so their shoot, their fuse is really short. Their physical health is, is not great. They're very impatient. They're exhausted. They are unhappy. They have developed poor mental health. And I'll, I'll tell them, I'll say like, what are your kids going to look back and remember 20 years mm. from now? Are they going to remember the organic snack you left out for them at the end of the day when you were miserable and unhealthy and not present in the, the family life? Or are they going to remember like mom being happy? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is such an eye-opening 
thought for some people is that like the little stuff doesn't matter as much as is mom happy and well, is mom able to show up in the family at the fullest iteration, even if that means we're not eating organic food, even if that means sometimes we eat hot dogs for dinner, like yes. <laughs> this idea of making space for ourselves first and foremost has such a profound ripple effect on the family. That's so damn beautiful. Like I always say like in a much less eloquent way, I said, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. Yep. Totally. Or if mama's not well, nobody's well. Like mama is the heart center of the family. As much as we need our partners and spouses and you know, it does take a village to raise children. The mother is the, the, the heartbeat of everything. And we carry such an immense mental load. Yeah. And I have learned the hard way, man, this, the last two, three years growing a business, a pandemic, I have learned the hard way that I was, I was last on the totem pole and it yeah. wrecked me for, it, yeah. you know, I'm still learning how to process and get over this and change this. And like, really, like you said, prioritizing my sleep and prioritizing, mm. like, if that means I take a bubble bath every night, we'll yeah. freaking get over it. Totally. Okay? totally. If that means mommy needs to have once a month where I go t- stay in a hotel room by myself for 24 yeah. hours, oh, that's what it means, right? Like this unapologetic need to fill up our own cups and for yeah. everything to not be perfect. And it's okay if your kids eat freaking dino nuggets for dinner yeah. and pizza, <laughs> like who cares? It's okay. It's We're okay. big fans of like the frozen tortellini at Costco. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> really easy. <laughs> we legit had frozen tortellini last night for dinner. So yeah. if you think that the health coach is not serving their kids tortellini. Yep. There was yep. a shitload of veggies in there too. So I don't feel as bad, but damn, yeah, I mean totally. like, can we just give ourselves a break? I I wanted to ask you about your morning routines because in talking about all of this and, you know, I'm a big believer in like getting something accomplished or having some me time mm. or something in the morning because a lot of time as a mom, you don't have time to yourself, right? And that totally. water and like doing the most important things or the things that give you life, just having a little bit of time in the morning before your children are awake or before you're like on call or mm-hmm. on, on with your jobs. Like what does the perfect morning look like for you? I think that's a great question because one of the things that was really pivotal in my life, and, and this didn't even really have to do with my sobriety, but I used to have my quote unquote me time at the end of the day after the kids mm-hmm. went to bed. And that's when my partner and I would watch some TV, like we'd hang out and eat probably junk food. And, and that me time never felt very fulfilling. It always felt like it was like, I didn't really want to stay up till 10 o'clock watching Netflix. Like I didn't really want to eat that cookie, but we were just so exhausted by the end of the day that it was just like all we could do to sit down and watch, watch Ozarks on Netflix or something. Right. And I, had all these aspirations for this morning routine. I had all these aspirations for exercise and movement in my life. And I just never could find the time. I could never find the energy because I would wake up immediately barrel into the day, getting the kids to school. And that was just, you know, the way it went. And I, I don't, I wish I could remember like who said this or what, like what shift it was, but something changed. And I decided that my me time was going to be in the morning instead of in the evening, Mm. because I was uh, considering this idea of the body battery. I was so fried by the end of the day that I wasn't even enjoying it. Like I wasn't fully there. It was just keeping me up later. And it was always late because, you know, we say when the kids get to bed and sometimes the kids get to bed two hours past when they're supposed to. And 
I, I started shifting it to five, six in the morning and my, my kids get ready for school starting at seven. And what I realized is that this time when my house is quiet and the, it's dark outside and like, it's just like me and a cup of coffee is such a beautiful, sacred, quiet time. And I was fully charged. I was like fully mm. present. I was rested. I was at my my best and shifting the me time to the morning and which requires us to go to bed. We pretty much go to bed after the kids go to bed. Right. Shifting that into the morning has been really, really substantial in the way it has impacted the quality of my me time and what I get out of it. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in doing what feels good. And sometimes 5am like hardcore workout feels good. And then sometimes it's like snoozing until 6.30 and then doing a quick journaling session. Um, But in this season, I actually told my husband, I was like, all right, this is it. I got to be back to a 5 a.m. bitch because (laughs) this is is the time it it requires for me to do what I want to do in my life. And so this morning I was was a 5 a.m. bitch and woke up at 5 and I – did some reading and some journaling and I really like using card pulls like like oracle cards tarot mm-hmm. cards so I did some of that um this morning with a cup of coffee just on my quiet couch with no kids like oh, no pets no husband because he was still asleep and then transitioned into a peloton ride and a peloton workout after that and then was showered and ready by the time my kids woke up and it really has just when we talk about the body battery and we talk about the things that drain it, there are also things that juice it up. There are also things that increase your body battery. And my morning routine for me is absolutely one of those things. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's not always the same. It, it looks different depending on what season I'm in and, and what feels good to my body. And actually exercise has not felt good in my morning routine up until just recently. And so really tuning into where my energy levels out, what feels good in my body, what is filling my cup up, what actually feels good versus what I'm just like in the habit of doing. And it, it's really, truly one of like the most transformative pieces of, of what I do in my day to day now. Oh, that's so good. And I love how you, how it doesn't have to be a specific way. It doesn't have to be super rigid. It doesn't have to be like 5am on the Peloton every mm. single day. Like it's, what feels good to you. Right. And it can look different, but even, even if you're only getting, you know, like you said, 30 minutes and you're getting journaling in, like that's so much more life giving to you and your battery, body battery than (laughs) waking up at seven Oh two because there's a child in your face. And you're like, I feel like I'm behind that day. I'm behind. I'm I'm forgetting something. I'm rushing. And like, that is just the most transformative thing for me too. It sucks getting up early. I hate getting up early, but I do it because I know it fills up my cup. And like you said, that me time, front loading your me time versus Mm. like what's left over me time. Huge game changer. It's so funny you say that like a a kid in your face because I started (laughs) sleeping with a sleep mask on because like we're in this rental house that has like all sorts of like light leaks in the middle of the night. So I started sleeping with a sleep mask on. And just this weekend, I sleep in on the weekends. I, don't get me wrong. I, yes. I love sleeping Likewise. in. I sleep in on the weekends. But this face mask has given like my kid the ability to super stealth, like sneak <laughs> up to me. And I don't, I'm like dead <laughs> asleep. Don't even know he's there until he's like three inches from my face. And he's like, mommy, Paw Patrol movie. <laughs> so terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> terrifying. Like 
<laughs> Nothing will make me bolt out of bed faster than like the heart attack that is a toddler sneaking up on you. Oh, that is so terrifying. But yeah, if, if you know, you know. I mean. Yeah, if you know, you know. If, <laughs> if you know, you know. Oh my goodness, so funny. Well, I've got one last question for you, and then we can wrap up this amazing conversation. Um, but I want to know what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received, or one of the best. Mm. That's kind of a big question, but maybe yeah. one of the best pieces of advice you've ever gotten. You know, I think that the one that sticks out to me is nobody is paying as much attention to me as I think they are. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, mind blowing. I know. So, you know, it just really has let me be free to be me. And a story that I've struggled with my whole life is, is being too much too mm. you know, too much of everything. And in a lot of ways that really kept me small and it really held me back and, and fully expressing myself. And it just made me scared and so concerned about what other people are thinking. And this idea is just like the most freeing idea that like people aren't paying attention to me as much as I think they are. Because <laughs> it feels like everyone's watching us, but they're not. They're not. It's it's great. So freeing. we're all so worried about ourselves. Yeah. We're not worried about what totally exactly. <laughs> That's such a game changer. Well I yep. definitely want to make sure and tell our mamas and our women listening how they can connect with you, how they can work with you if that mm. feels aligned. Um, what are some ways that they can connect with you and, and possibly learn and be supported by you? Yeah, amazing. Um, so I do private and group coaching. I currently have some, I'm not sure when this will, this will launch, but I've got different ways to work with me, whether you are looking to change your relationship with alcohol or you have already removed it from your life and really want to make this feel good and juicy and expressive. So if you are sober curious, if you're dipping your toes into this, I do have a self-paced course called The Booze Breakup. It is an eight-module program that is really rooted in the evidence and the research that gives us this whole person approach to building the sustainable life without alcohol. I also am really excited. I'm launching a project next month called Sober Stories. It is Ooh. a multimedia platform. It'll be blog, YouTube, and podcast, really just rooted into telling really good stories and connecting through this idea of storytelling and shared stories and hearing ourselves reflected in somebody else's story. So that'll be, that'll be coming next month, but that's exciting. I'm, yeah. I'm super excited. And, and all, all, all that to say, I'm always on Instagram. My handles at Beth Bowen underscore. You can always DM me. I'm pretty much an open book, obviously. <laughs> oh, I will absolutely link, um, link your Instagram and all of the things website, Instagram, um, sober stories. We will link all of that so that our listeners can check Beautiful. you out and give you a follow because you're just so inspiring. Even if you are not at a place where you are ready to break up with alcohol, that's okay. That is yeah, still totally. a really amazing follow. You just have such a beautiful energy and light. And I, I really enjoy you and your content and just the, the essence of you. So I, I'm grateful for you. And I thank you for sharing your story and being so honest and open and vulnerable. I think that it is no coincidence we are talking and it's no coincidence when this yeah. airs like this will reach the right person at the right time well the feeling is completely completely mutual my friend oh thank you so much well we will link everything in the show notes below so y'all please go give beth a follow and as always we are so grateful for you listening thank you so much for tuning in and we'll catch up with y'all next time Amazing. Awesome, beth. bye take care thanks bye-bye mm -hmm. 
how you can help me, why don't you screenshot this podcast and share it to your social media? Tag me. My Instagram is at the fit life with Jessica. Take it another step further and leave me a review and a five-star rating in Apple podcast. It would mean the world to me. Thanks friend. Thank you.